0: Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 is our text for today. The title of our message is Provision of Salvation. Provision of Salvation, Genesis chapter 22. Let's enjoy hearing from God as we read His Word. You follow along in your copy as I read Genesis chapter 22. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kimuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, for Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. We come to a passage of scripture today that's probably familiar to most of us. I would think. It's a story that's been told probably billions of times since it happened. It's a true story. It's a story of faith and sacrifice. It's a story of building suspense and then thankful rescue and relief. It's got this rescue and reward element. It's a story of divine intervention and divine provision. Um, So, so many incredible themes and, and things going on here in this incredible story. But ultimately, it is a story that's paving the way and pointing us onward to a greater story of faith and sacrifice, suspense and relief, rescue and reward divine intervention and provision. And so, as we study Genesis 22, 1 through 24, church family, what I think we learn, and hopefully we'll see this as we walk through this passage, is this. That faith in God provides an opportunity to witness God's saving provision. Faith in God provides an opportunity to witness God's saving provision. Now, as soon as sin entered God's perfect world in Genesis chapter 3, God promised to send this deliverer who would be the offspring of a woman. In other words, this is boy that's going to be born, and he's going to grow up to be a man, and he is going to provide deliverance from the curse of sin. It's the most important promise that we see in, in Genesis and really throughout the Bible. And so we've traced that promise as we've walked through uh, Genesis thus far. We've traced that promise through generations of people to this man named Abraham. And, And we know from our study that Abraham had these two sons. One was the son of human effort and one was the son of divine promise. And in chapter 21, the son of human effort, remember from last week, gets cast out. The son of human effort is cast out according to God's instructions so that the son of promise could be the one through whom God's blessings would come to the world. And so just think about this in the context. At this point in the story, Abraham's hope for deliverance, our hope for deliverance rests in this promised son named Isaac. So, taken in its context, God's instructions to Abraham here in this passage seem completely irrational. They don't make any sense at all, not to a human mind. This is the son of promise, and God's calling Abraham to kill the son of promise. But thankfully, God's writing the story. Not Abraham, not you, not me. This is God's story, and God knows exactly what he's doing. I want to share with you three main truths from Genesis 22 as we just seek to learn from this story and kind of unpack it as we go. First, we're going to consider Abraham's faith that leads to obedience to God. Second, we're going to consider God's provision. And then third, we're going to consider this story in light of salvation history namely in light of the cross of Christ. You can kind of think about where we're going with the words faith, provision, and Jesus. Okay, that's kind of where we're going um, in the next few minutes. So let's start where the text starts, and that's with a test of faith. Uh, Truth number one is this. Genuine faith in God shows itself through surrender to the will of God. Genuine faith in God shows itself through a surrender, a bowing down to the will of God. There's no denying the fact that this story is one of the greatest examples of faith in God that we do find on the pages of Scripture. Um, I don't think anyone could deny that truth. Verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. We're told explicitly that God's purpose in calling Abraham to sacrifice his son here for Abraham's life was to test Abraham to test his faith. When Abraham then, if we were to fast forward in the story, when he exercises faith, as we see through complete obedience, he was going to do, he did everything I called him to do and was going to finish it completely if God hadn't intervened through the angel of the Lord saying, Abraham, Abraham. And when that happens, we find these words, God through his angel saying, for now I know that you fear God. In other words, not that you're scared of God, but that your life is fully surrendered to the will of God, that you have faith that is leading to obedience. This event is a test of Abraham's faith, a test of whether or not Abraham actually believes in, actually trusts in God. I want you to see with me um, quickly three ways that we see Abraham display faith. That's an important word, that he displays this faith. I mean, first, Abraham displays faith in God's plan and God gives them this crazy plan, right? Abraham, he says, here am I. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains for which I shall tell you. I mean, even the way God is telling this to Abraham, it's like he's, he's just, this is, a, this is gonna be the most extreme test of faith in Abraham's life. And God's making sure Abraham realizes that by saying, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go to this land and sacrifice him there. This is a plan that doesn't make sense from a human perspective. Now, remember, Abraham did have two sons. Like we said, in the last chapter, God told him to send the older son away because the younger son, Isaac, is the the son of promise. And so it makes sense then why he says, take your son, your only son, because the other son has been cast away. But it also makes us realize just what an incredible test of faith this is. Last chapter, God told him to get rid, go send off his one son. Just remember, that was a struggle for Abraham to do that. So now he's left with this son, the son of promise, and now God is telling him, all right, go and sacrifice this, this son. It really doesn't make sense from a human perspective. We can only imagine, I can only imagine all the questions that must have been flooding Abraham's mind. God, what about your promises? <laughs> God, well, how could you ask me to do something like this? This just doesn't seem right. God, what am I going to tell Sarah when, when I get back home? What, what, isn't there another way? Oh, all these questions going through his mind, but the text tells us that Abraham's response, church, I just want us to see this, is simply obedience. I mean, that's the, the flow of this passage is highlighting obedience, 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 obedience. He just does what God tells him to do. Immediately, completely, without complaint, Abraham obeys. Verse 3, so Abraham rose up early in the morning. He didn't spend months praying about it. let me pray about this. Let me make sure I'm hearing from the Lord. Make make sure this is God's will. He knows, when when he knows what God wants him to do, he just does it. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. He cuts wood for the burnt offering. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Church, that is the obedience of faith. The plan doesn't make sense. The plan seems like an impossible task for anyone to carry out. The plan seems to be the opposite of what we think should be happening in this story. But the plan came from God. And at this point in his life, we've seen Abraham falter numerous times. But in this instance, that's all that mattered to Abraham. This plan is God's plan, and he's going to trust God's plan. Abraham displays faith in God's plan. Another way we see Abraham display faith is through God's power. God's power. Verse 4 tells us on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He sees the place from afar. Abraham says to his young men, all right, you stay here, and me and the boy are going to go to this land. But notice what he says. We're going to go over there. We're going to worship and we're going to come to you again. We're going to go worship and come to you again. You notice that? He sees the place where he's to sacrifice it's his son. He s- tells his servant, stay here. He says, me and the boy are going to go. We're going to worship, and we're going to come back. If his instructions are to sacrifice, that means to kill his son, how in the world can he tell his servants, y'all stay here. We're going to come back after we finish worshiping. How could he say that? Did he misunderstand God's instructions? I don't think so. Look at the rest of the story. He takes the knife to kill his son. He didn't misunderstand God's instructions at all. Was he lying? I don't think so. Abraham has lied before. We've seen that in previous chapters, but there's nothing in this passage that is painting Abraham's actions in in a bad light here. I don't think he's lying. Well, what does he, what does he mean? If he knows God has told him to kill his son, and if he knows he's going to do just that, what does he mean that he and the boy will come again? I think the author of Hebrews helps us out here. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So how could Abraham say that he and the boy would go worship and return if he knew he was going there to sacrifice his son? Abraham believed that God had the power to raise Isaac back from the dead. And this faith in God's power to raise Isaac from the dead stemmed from his faith in God's promises to do what he had said. Listen, Abraham knew God had promised that the blessing is going to come through Isaac. Abraham has learned the hard way we've seen that God always keeps His word, and it's always best just to trust that God's going to do it. He says He's going to do. Abraham knew God had told him to sacrifice his son. Abraham knew from past revelation that God um, that nothing is too hard from God. Remember that question in a previous chapter where he said, "Is there anything too hard for the Lord?" And the answer is obviously no. Abraham knows all of this. You put all of that together. Abraham's trust is that God has the power to raise the dead. God's going to keep his promise to bless the nations through Isaac by, he believes, bringing Isaac back to life after the sacrifice is over. Abraham displayed incredible faith in God's power. We also see that Abraham displayed great faith in God's provision. In his plan, in his power, and in his provision. Verse 6, Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, uh, Abraham, he said, my father. He says, here am I. He says, behold, look. That word behold is look. Look at this. Father, there is fire. There is wood. Isaac's not dumb. We're missing something if we're going to have a sacrifice. We're missing the sacrifice. We're missing the thing that is going to die. Dad, where is the lamb? Where is the offering? Where is the life that will be killed as a sacrifice and worship to the Lord? I don't know if there were tears in Abraham's eyes. I don't know if his voice was shaky I don't know if there was a knot in his stomach, but I can only imagine that there was. But we do know that Abraham simply and humbly and confidently tells his son, Son, God's going to provide the sacrifice. Don't you worry. My hope is in the Lord. You can put your hope in him as well. God's going to provide the sacrifice. More to unpack there. We're going to get there in just a few moments. But I just want you to notice Abraham's great faith in the provision of God. He trusted that God would provide it exactly what was needed, which was a sacrifice. Before we move on past Abraham's faith, I want us to notice one more thing. Just kind of big picture. We step back from this story and, and just kind of look at it from a little bit higher elevation. I want you to notice that Abraham in this passage doesn't say that he believes God. He doesn't say that he has faith in God. He shows that he has faith in God. Remember a minute ago I said the word display that I use as an important word. What we see here is a display of faith. Not just someone walking around talking about, oh yeah, I trust the Lord. But we see someone actually living it out in his life. Abraham's faith was visible. He shows that he has faith in God's plan, in God's power, in God's provision. In verse 9 and 10, Abraham built the altar. He arranged the wood. He bound up his son. He lays his son there on the wood, on the altar. And then the text says, he reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This is faith that is visible. It's faith on display. Brothers and sisters, a lot of people say they have faith in God, but there is such a thing as dead faith. There is such a thing as faith that doesn't actually save. Our works do not save us. Faith in Jesus brings salvation into our lives, but genuine faith will then result in genuine works for the Lord true faith, this visible faith, if we're trusting in God for salvation, we will be producing the fruit of salvation in our lives. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter calling on Christians to live lives filled with good works, and he used Abraham in this story as an example of someone who had genuine faith because his faith was visible through his obedience to God's command to sacrifice his son. Now, God had already counted Abraham righteous back all the way back in chapter 15. God's not looking at Abraham saying, wow, you really did a good job obeying, so I'm going to love you, and I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to save you. That's already happened all the way back in chapter 15. God has already credited Abraham with righteousness based on Abraham's belief in God, his trust in God, not his good works. But what we see now is that that was genuine faith because we see genuine works coming as a result of that faith. So, friend, what about you? You can say you have faith. And that's good, but let me ask you a question. Where's the evidence of it in your life and in my life? Can your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, your classmates, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, can they see your faith? Can they see that your faith in Jesus leads you to live counterculturally? Can they see that your faith in Jesus leads you to fight hard against the sin in your life, even if that makes you unpopular? Can they see that your faith in Jesus is leading you to obey God's commands, even when God's commands don't really make sense from an earthly perspective, even when God's commands are hard and difficult to obey? That's genuine faith, faith that is visible. And we see an example of that here in this passage. But as great, church, as great as Abraham's faith is in this passage, and as great an example of faith as it is, Abraham's faith is not the most important part of this story. Abraham's faith is not the most important part of this story. Truth number two is this, church. The provision of God shows itself through a rescuing sacrifice. The provision of God shows itself through a rescuing sacrifice. I used to think that the main point of this passage was Abraham's faith. Years ago, if I were to stand up and preach this passage, it would have been all about faith would have been pretty much all I talked about. But thankfully, someone who helped helped train me in interpreting the Scriptures graciously corrected my thinking. The main point here isn't what Abraham did. The main point is what God did. In church, that's always the main point. One of the main clues that this is the main point is Abraham's response when God provides a ram to sacrifice in Isaac's place. We're going to jump ahead to verse 14 for just a moment. Notice that Abraham calls the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham didn't call this the mount of human faith. He called this the mount where God provides. That's the main point. And so let's take a look here at God's provision. Again, I want you to notice with me three truths about God's provision that we find here. First, we see that God's provision is a substitute sacrifice. God's provision in this passage is a substitute sacrifice, Verse 10 set up the climax of the story with Abraham pulling out the knife to slaughter his son. That word slaughter is the word that's used of sacrifice in the the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law to sacrifice the the, the lamb or whatever the animal was. He pulls out the knife to sacrifice his son. And then verse 11 ushers in the climax. The angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says for the third time in this passage, here am I. Here am I. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then the text goes on in verse 13. It says, and Abraham lifted up his eyes. He's lifted up his eyes once and seen the land that he's going to, the land of Moriah. Now he lifts up his eyes there in the land of Moriah. And what does he see? He sees a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Here's a key phrase here, underlined in your Bible, instead of his son. In the place of his son. God provided a ram. God provided a sacrifice, and that sacrifice took Isaac's Place. It was offered up instead of his son, the text tells us. Friend, the greatest need in that moment was for a sacrifice to take Isaac's place. In church, the greatest need for every person in the world is for a sacrifice to take our place. God's provision met that need for Isaac, and friend, God's provision meets that need for us today. But more on that in just a moment. So here we see God's provision is a substitute sacrifice. Another thing we see about God's provision is this. It enables our rescue. God's provision enables our rescue. What happened as a result of God providing a substitute sacrifice? Well, Isaac is rescued here. He's rescued. Isaac got up off the altar. Isaac was not killed. His life was saved. Isaac gained life where death seemed to be certain. This substitute sacrifice drastically changed Isaac. In a very real sense, it brought him from death to life, from certain death to certain life. He was as good as dead, bound up. Can you imagine the scene? Bound up, laid on the altar, on the wood, fire in hand, knife in hand. And then all of a sudden, God intervenes. This divine intervention. And God's divine intervention is an intervention of life. It's an intervention. It's a provision which enabled Isaac's rescue. And again, as we'll see in just a moment, God's provision enables our rescue as well. Why don't you see a third thing about this provision here in this passage? It's this. God's provision ensures the continuation of his promises. We don't want to lose sight of all these promises that we've been talking about, right? Right? We're talking about all. I mean, so much has been about the promises that God's made, and is He going to do those? And how's He going to how's He going to fulfill those promises? We won't going to forget about those. God's provision ensures the continuation of His promises. Remember, God's made all these promises, and they're all hinging upon Isaac. And in this moment, they're hinging upon Isaac not being killed, but Isaac living. Verse 15 through 18, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time from heaven and and, and says, this is God speaking, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, here comes the promises, right? This renewal of promises. I will surely bless you. We've heard this before. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And now he adds another analogy as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring, he hasn't made this promise yet, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. We have heard this next one and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed that was all the way back when God had called Abraham to leave his home country and go to a place he never knew God said I'm going to bless all the nations through you now when God called him to leave where he was living to go to another place to sacrifice his son it ends with God saying guess what my promise is still secure I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you because you have obeyed my voice and they return to the servants they go back home to Beersheba What happened? God is here renewing his promises of blessing and offspring and worldwide blessing. Now, in this passage right here, specifically, we see that God, um, in a way, credits the renewal, the continuation of these promises to Abraham's faith. But if we read carefully in context, we realize that Abraham's faith was only as good as God's willingness to intervene, as God's willingness to provide a sacrifice. And the continuation of these promises are banking on Isaac being alive. And so ultimately, it is the provision that God has made that has led to the continuation of these promises in Abraham's life and therefore in Isaac's life. Now, we see one other way that God ensures the continuation, that his, this, his provision ensures the continuation of his promises. Look at that last little section there, verse 20 through 24. that has got all the names. Now, these, this is one of those places where it's really easy just to kind of skim over really quickly, Uh, but we've seen multiple times in Genesis so far that genealogies are important, and oftentimes there's some really incredible truths that we can gain if we'll slow down, and um, even if we can't pronounce all the names right, uh, by God's grace and help, we can see what God is trying to teach us in a passage like this. So verse 20 informs us that, uh, tells us that Abraham is informed that his brother has had children. Now, remember from chapter 12 that one of his brothers, uh, he had two brothers. One of them is dead. That was Lot's dad. But there's another brother we haven't really heard anything about. Well, all of a sudden, he kind of comes back on the scene. At least he's mentioned to Abraham. And Abraham learns that his other brother has had children, many children, actually. And in the middle of this list of sons, there's a name that stands out. And it stands out because it's not a son. It's a girl. It's a daughter. In fact, it's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Verse 23 tells us that Bethuel, which would have been Abraham's nephew, fathered Rebekah. I say, why is that important? Well, it's important because for God to continue his promise of offspring, not only does Isaac need to live, which God provided a sacrifice so that he would live, he needs to have children, which means he needs a wife. Guess what? You may already know this. If not, you just figured it out. Isaac is going to marry Rebekah. Spoiler alert. It's coming in a couple chapters, okay? Isaac's going to marry Rebekah. What's God doing? While all this is happening with Abraham, and as we talked about last week, Ishmael, and then Isaac, and he's telling Abraham, go sacrifice your son. I'm going to provide a ram. While God's doing all of that with Abraham, God's also in another place giving Abraham's family, extended family, children, and raising up this young lady named Rebecca, who's going to marry Isaac, whose life has just been spared by God's provision. Church, God's got this figured out. (laughs) He's got it all figured out, and his provision is leading to a continuation of his promises for them and for us. Promises that will ultimately lead to the Messiah, the promised deliverer, Jesus the Son of God, which is actually where this passage is meant to lead us. We examine this passage in light of Abraham's faith. We examine it in light of God's provision in this moment, in this instance, in Abraham and Isaac's life. But we now need to examine this passage in light of salvation history. That is in light of the cross of Christ. And so truth number three that I want to share with you today is this. God's life-giving provision centers upon the death of his son. God's life-giving provision centers upon the death of his, not Abraham, his, God's son. Church, all the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. We sang about that a few minutes ago. Every part of the Bible is in some way making us, the New Testament says, wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said all scripture is doing that. It's breathed out by God, and it's all making us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some passages, if you could have this picture with me for a minute, some passages of of the Bible are damp with the gospel of Jesus. In other words, you kind of have to sit on it a while before you start to see and soak up those gospel truths that are there. In other words, they're not as easy to see, but they're there. Other passages of scripture are dripping with gospel truth. All you got to do is get close to it, and you end up wet with the gospel. This is one of those passages. This passage isn't damp with the gospel. It is dripping with gospel truth. It is screaming to us, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I want you to notice, women, just a few ways we see this passage pointing us to Jesus. Three ways we see God's life-giving provision centering upon the death of his only son. First, Jesus' church is God's beloved and only son. I hope that as we read that phrase multiple times in this passage, your mind just went straight to Jesus Christ. Jesus is God the Father's beloved and only son. When Jesus came up from the waters of baptism, a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, he is my beloved son. Later in Jesus' life, Jesus told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus was and is God's only son. Friend, it's not by accident that God told Abraham, Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him. It's not by accident that God told Abraham, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Jesus is God's beloved and only son. This passage is pointing us to Christ. Secondly, Jesus cooperated with his father's plan to kill him. Jesus cooperated with his father's plan to kill him. It's another way that this passage points us to Jesus We see in this passage a precursor, uh, a foreshadowing, if you will, of the divine interaction between God the Father and God the Son, which would result in our salvation. Notice that it is Abraham who wields the knife. He will do the killing. Notice that it's Isaac who is the silent sacrifice. Isaac says nothing as he carries the wood up the mountain other than an obvious question, where's the sacrifice? Because he doesn't understand what's going on but he says nothing other than that he says nothing as his father binds him he says nothing as he is laid on the wood he says nothing as his father takes out the knife to slaughter his son church we cannot read this and not see god the father and god the son as this text says both of them together climbing up a hill called golgotha outside the gates of jerusalem Isaiah describes the sacrifice of the suffer, suffering and saving servant this way. Isaiah says, The Lord, notice who's doing the killing. The Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus the servant, the iniquity of us all. Notice the silent Uh, silence of the sacrifice. He, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now we go back to the father's role, yet it was the will of Yahweh, the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. It might have been the Jews that were yelling crucify. It might have been the Romans who were nailing the hands and the feet of Jesus to the cross, but friends, it was God the Father who was putting His Son to death. God the Father did the killing. God the Son cooperated in silent submission. This passage is pointing us to Jesus. But one more way that we see this passage pointing us to Jesus, friend, Jesus died as our substitute to provide us with rescue. I said earlier, that the greatest need of every person in the world is for a sacrifice to take our place. For Isaac, in that moment, God's provision was a ram with his head wrapped up in a thicket. And for humanity, God's provision is his only son who with thorns wrapped around his head substituted his life. For ours. Friend, Jesus is our substitute sacrifice. Jesus died in our place, his life in exchange for ours. This was God's plan from the beginning. When God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, he was not only testing Abraham's faith, but he was giving a picture of the coming promised one, his only son. And Jesus would climb a mountain outside Jerusalem with a cross of wood on his back. Jesus would be laid on that cross of wood. But unlike Isaac, Jesus would actually die. The father would kill his son. There would be no lamb to take Jesus' place because Jesus was the lamb. He was the substitute sacrifice for you and for me. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God when he saw Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. As the apostle Peter said, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter goes on to say he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And later Peter said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see the substitutionary, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ why Peter says that he might bring us to God that he might remove our sins from us and give us life everlasting with the God who made us and the God who loves us so much that he would kill his son in our place God provided a ram for Abraham to kill instead of his son and friend God the father provided his son to be killed instead of us God's life-giving provision centers upon the death of His Son. Do you see God's amazing plan? Do you see it? I mean, it seems crazy at first. It seems counterintuitive. It seems like the opposite of what's supposed to happen. The promised one can't die. He's supposed to be the deliverer. But in God's sovereign plan, the death of the promised son would bring life to God's promised people as God's power raised him up from the dead, sealing the truth that his death was the sufficient provision for our promised salvation, which then means that we ought to respond with faith in God's plan, faith, in God's power faith, in God's promised salvation, that provision of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, we ought to respond with faith in Jesus. Church, I pray that we learn from this passage the importance of living a life of faith that is displayed through a complete surrender to the will of God in our lives. But even more than that, I pray that this passage leads us to complete dependence upon and complete rejoicing in God's provision for us that provision of sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, a life of faithful and be obedience is important, but more important than what we do for God is what he does for us. Abraham doesn't name the place, my faith. He names the place Yahweh provides. Abraham didn't walk down that mountain amazed by his faith. I think it's okay for us to learn from his example and go, wow, that was, that was great faith. It's okay for us to do that for a moment. But Abraham didn't walk down that mountain going, whoa, man, I did it. <laughs> I did it. I passed the test. Look at me. No. He walked down that mountain amazed by God's plan, by God's power and by God's provision. Church, when we have climbed Mount Calvary and we have gazed upon God's provision through Jesus Christ, our attention will not be on what we do for God. Our attention forever and ever will be on what God has done for us. We will be amazed not by our faith, but by God's plan, God's power, and God's provision in our lives. Faith is necessary. Faith will prove itself through works of obedience. But faith, whether it's the initial faith that brings salvation into our lives or the daily faith as we walk through our own time. Times of testing must always magnify God's saving provision. Our faith must magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, what hard thing is God calling you to do today? What is it that God is calling you to? God calls us to hard things because it takes faith. And then that faith leads us to worship the Lord. As we say, he did it, not me. Friend, I would say step out in faith. God would say step out in faith and do it, but not for your own glory nor in your own strength. When we stand around the throne of God one day, friend, we're not going to look at each other and say, wow, what great faith we had. We're going to stand around the throne and we're going to look at the throne. And we're going to see the Lamb who is slain. And we're going to say, wow, what a sacrifice. Wow, what a provision. Hallelujah, what a Savior God has given to us. Faith in God provides an opportunity to witness, to enjoy, to benefit from, and to celebrate God's saving provision, to celebrate Jesus. And so, church, may our faith increase. May our faith be visible but may our faith magnify for ourselves and the watching world the sacrificial provision that purchased our salvation so that all eyes can be fixed upon Jesus. That lamb who was slain in our place, who died, but church, and by God's power, who lives today. Would you pray with me? Father, story That only you could write. And God, you're continuing to write it. As through the power of your gospel, you are drawing men and women and boys and girls to salvation through faith in Jesus. It's a story you're still writing as you enable us to walk in faith and to do hard things for you. Not so that we can be seen and made much of, but so that the name of Christ can be exalted and lifted up. Father, if there's someone here today who needs to believe in Jesus for salvation, God, I pray that in this moment, they would cry out to you. and They don't have to cry out to anybody else. They don't cry out to me. They don't cry out to the person sitting next to them, Lord. It's you that saves. They cry out to you for salvation through faith in Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, would you encourage us and challenge us to live out the faith that we have as a gift from you? That it would be visible in the way that we live our lives that we would obey you so that Jesus Christ, the provision of our salvation, can be magnified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.